this is Dr. Dillard, and uh, this is our second episode for How Black People Lost Their Mind. Today we're going to be discussing uh, episode one, and um, we have a Madison Dillard, and Madison is the editor for Reductress Magazine. She's also a contributor to Cosmopolitan and Refinery29. So we'll be discussing the London Company and when the colony arrived in Jamestown, we will be talking about some of the legal blockades that were put in place that stopped black people from utilizing their intelligence. And one of those blockades we talk about today is the the laws. And it actually wasn't a law. It was a custom or rule that was put in place by uh, the Governor Drake when he came to Jamestown and realized that the colonists needed some rules to abide by. And the rules that Drake had written were called uh, laws, morales, and martial. And those laws were very harsh. And this was before any of the forced and unpaid workers had come to America. So basically, uh, the English or the British was pretty brutal and harsh to their own people before outsiders came from uh, other different places, such as Africa. So, Madison, welcome to how Thank black you. people lost their minds. And I guess how are you doing? I am. I am great. I want to thank you for taking the time and consideration to participate in our discussion today. Well, thank you for having me. So I guess we'll just uh, jump right in to uh, okay. the discussion. Um, so, what did you think so about I, what did you think about episode one? I thought it was great. It was a lot of information that I definitely hadn't heard before, and I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard before about like the details. Um of the slave trade and like what led up to the moment of it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm excited for the next episode too. Did you notice in episode one that I didn't use the word slave or slave owners or slave. Right. I was going to ask that, um, that you say that I noticed you right or you say, forced and unpaid workers and I was wondering um yeah like was that intentional and if it was and what your intention behind it was yeah it was used intentional and the thought behind it was when we in America starts to discuss or talk about uh slaves and slavery and if we talk into the dominant culture, 
or Europeans or white people, they began to shut down because just I think slavery is kind of embarrassing or embarrassing to even chat about. And so mm-hmm. they would rather just sit down and run away and avoid the conversation completely. But by by using a force and unpaid worker is I think more palatable to an understanding because we all understand what an unpaid worker is. And we all understand mm-hmm. we all understand what it means to force someone to do something. So I my thoughts is when we talk about forcing unpaid workers, then we can have a we can have a conversation. And interesting. Uh, maybe both sides can begin to understand one another. So my mm-hmm. thoughts, my thoughts is that we can't really move along with the discussion which we need to have here in the United States. And so right. we could listen to both sides will have the ability to listen to each other. So that's why in these, uh, this podcast and episodes, uh, I don't use the words uh, slave, slavery, or slave owner. That's interesting. Um, I was also wondering how you came up with the name for the podcast. The name, How Black People Lost Their Minds? Mm-hmm. That name was created because we looked at, through research, how intelligent and advanced some of the countries and nation states in Africa was pre-colonialism. And so after having 14 million people taken from varying areas, of the continent sort of created a drain, a brain drain. And so some of the, mm-hmm. some of the workers who came to America from Africa actually had specific knowledge and skills that were needed. And the slave traders sometimes would go into Africa and specifically go to a certain region because they needed certain knowledge. Like in South Carolina, when the colony was uh, developed in South Carolina, they wanted to grow rice. But they didn't didn't know how to grow rice. And so they went into Sierra Leone because in Sierra Leone, the people there had knowledge of rice growing. And you got to understand, too, that the people that came over, the Europeans, most of them came from the cities. And so, because at the time, London was overcrowded. It had a population explosion. It was overcrowded. They didn't have enough work for people. And by sending people to the New World was a way that they could sort of uh, thin out the population. And so mm-hmm. most of those people that they sent over saw opportunity because they were giving land away and they saw the opportunity to come over and uh, start a new life. So a lot of them came when they brought their families with them. 
and started mm-hmm. started a new life over when it came over. I was also wondering, like, obviously they did give pieces of land away to English people and their families, but I was wondering um, how did they acquire the land to do that, or is there any, like, documentation about that? That you know, no, we're still researching that. That, um, and that's what one critical thing is because when they were giving away the head rights and they're giving away 50 acres for each person that came into the country, they had to have the land before they could promise to give the land away. But, mm-hmm. in, but in research in the old records of Jamestown and Virginia, where the first colony was. We haven't discovered anything that says how they got the land. We do know that when they came over, they built a fort. And the uh, John Smith and John Roth, John Roth's married Pocahontas, and maybe it's suspect, this is only just uh, an opinion, there's no facts to verify it. But if John Roth had married per- Pocahontas and Pocahontas was the princess of the uh, Native American tribe, then we feel that she may have had some influence on her father, whose name was Powhatan, where he would provide them land to live on and build a fence. Mm-hmm. Now, when they when they first came over, it's only about like the first uh, first maybe decade. There's only about four hundred settlers in the colonies, and so mm-hmm. and then after the within the first year, they developed the head right system to start offering their land, and so did pa, did Powhatan give them land in order to give away, we don't know that. And at this point, there's no records of it. Do you have any, or sorry? So did they take the land from the Native Americans or was the land given to them? We don't know. We do know eventually uh, land was taken from the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, obviously there isn't like, facts to back it up, but do you have your own suspicion or it's really too hard to tell? My suspicion is the Indians or the Native Americans, they had no economic system where someone could buy and sell land. And they felt that the land was given to people by a, a god, whatever their god was, and that the land was to be used by everyone if you treated it mm-hmm. and respected the land. And, of course, they were kind of hunter-gathering society, and they they would move from hunting grounds was depleted. They would just pack up their tribe and move to better hunt lands. And so I would suspect that 
they didn't have a problem allowing the settlers land to live on and to hunt on. And maybe it was unbeknown to them that the settlers were selling the land to other settlers Mm -hmm. as they came to America. So that's my suspicion of how it occurred. But as I said, I I have no proof or no facts to that. And that's one thing that I'm really trying to discover is how that land exchange became from the Native Americans to the settlers. Because if it did, the Native Americans had no benefit. They had no benefit. And the settlers benefited because they were able to bring over the indentured servants with the promise of land. And And in today's law, to actually give or sell something that you don't own is fraud. So then there's there's legal consequences for it in today's law. So, yeah, that's something that um, I'm looking into still. Good. Yeah, I wonder if there's anything out there about that specific point in time. There should be. Um, it should be, but uh, like I say, we haven't discovered it yet. I was also wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about the legal blockades that were used to disenfranchise these forced and unpaid workers. Well, when the, in 1619, when the uh, people came over, forced and unpaid workers came over uh, from Africa, Mm-hmm. At that time, in in Virginia, in Jamestown, there was no such thing as forcing people to do work. The people who were worked for the somewhat wealthy or the middle class who already existed in the colonies, they came as indentured servants. So those mm-hmm. those indentured servants were paid, they came and they had to work normally between four to seven years and then to pay back the money that that wealthy person had had paid for them to be transported to the new world. And once they paid that off, they could be free people. And so when what they called a 20 and odd number of people who had come over from Africa, which were the first forced and unpaid workers, they came as indentured. Mm. And they came on a, uh, a ship called the White Lion. And when they were, t- actually they were traded for food and provisions for the ship's crew. And they had were traded to the government officials and then those government officials assigned them into indentured servitude and they were mm-hmm. given, they were given so many years four to seven years indentured servitude before they possibly obtained their freedoms and so the first incident First known 
incident of someone in the colony who was forced to work the rest of their life for free was in 1640. There's a court case in Virginia that in 1640, uh, a forced and unpaid worker named John Punch, he had run away from a plantation in Virginia with a two white guys. And when they were captured, they were taken back to the plantation in Virginia. And they, they each were sentenced and get, they were each were given 40 lashes. And the two white guys were sentenced to an additional four years of indentured servitude that was added on to the years they had already signed into. John Punch, mm -hmm. John Punch, who was the black man, was sentenced to a life of indentured service. And that's the first incident of someone actually being sentenced to be work a worker for free for the rest of their life. Hmm. And so that set a precedent that other people followed along. Well, that's one of the laws, and I, I don't want to get too ahead of uh, our episodes. Um, right, that's, sorry. That was one of the blockades that were put in place that actually said someone had to work for someone else for the rest of their life for free. And, of course, it became a, a, a standard. And as we get, if I get into later episodes, I can explain how that standard developed where most Negroes who came to the United States became uh, forced and unpaid workers. Mm, I see. Um, and so this podcast basically seems like to me that it serves to like present all the facts for an argument for reparations. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, it's an argument for, I'd say, I, I'd say an argument for payment. I won't, I won't say reparations. Mm -hmm. uh, you had forced and unpaid workers who helped develop a society and that society became very, very prosperous over time mm -hmm. by the utilizing the labor of those forced and unpaid workers. But the forced and unpaid worker received no benefit. And you have to understand, so the forced and unpaid worker came from an area that was, everywhere was affluent and pretty much wealthy. When they came to the New World, they lost all of those opportunities and way of life that they were accustomed to and were relegated to living in substandard conditions. And so when you look at you took a worker from 
is place a residence and then you brought him over. You didn't let, you didn't allow him to use his intelligence. Because even though his society was more advanced than yours, you didn't create an advanced society. You just created a subsistence society because a lot of mm-hmm. the, the first first colonists came over, they starved to death or they died from diseases because they didn't know how to grow. They had no agricultural skills. And what little they did learn, they learned from the Native Americans if they were willing to teach them. There's one incident I talked about where they were starving and had no food, and uh, Captain John Smith went and negotiated with uh, Chief Powhatan, and they provided them corn to live throughout the winter. Mm-hmm. A, a couple of instances they had, they, they would, they, of course, they would go in the ships back and forth to England for supplies, and they would return, and there was times they returned and the whole colony, almost half of half of the colony, had been wiped out from disease and starvation. Yeah. So it was very, very difficult for them to get a toehold. And then at at, uh, at one time, I think it was like sixteen, eighteen, that King James was going to. King James had decided that the, establishing the colony was just a failure. And they was just going to uh, just shut the whole thing down and not try to expand and colonize in North America. It wasn't until the, the, the forced and unpaid workers from Africa came over in 1619 because those workers had the skills for agriculture and growing. Uh, there's some research that's done that those workers had come from the Virgin Islands and the Bahamas and where they had been there working with the Spanish and this, and were growing tobacco for the Spanish and, and uh, rice. And so when they came to America, they had those skills because they had been there. And the Spanish had been in the New World um, a little more than 100 years before the English came. So they were already growing agricultural products and the Caribbean and South America and Central America, which at the time had been colonized by the Spanish. Mm-hmm. So because those workers came in 1619 and had skills and were able to teach the colonies how to grow, which gave them an opportunity to get a foothold. And at that same time, within that same period of time, John Roth, who had a large plantation and had started growing tobacco. Now, John Roth had no experience in growing tobacco. So how did he get that experience to grow tobacco? In some books, it says that he, uh, they talk as though he was a chemist and he took the tobacco leaf and created it in such a way that it became sweet and they, they could sell tobacco to the British. And the British loved the tobacco and it started the tobacco market. 
But if he didn't have the skills, but if he had forced and unpaid workers with the skills, it's kind of logical to assume that those forced and unpaid workers grew the product that create a lot of wealth in the colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, you also said that, or just for that last answer, you touched upon that where people were getting these forced and unpaid workers was areas where everyone was affluent, but is that true? Like, aren't some, wouldn't some people be like kings and some people would be farmers or like there'd be some disparity? Do you know much about like the economic makeup of those places in Africa? Yeah, when they, uh, we talked about uh, the Portuguese. The Portuguese were the first Europeans enter into Africa. When the the Portuguese entered into Africa, uh, there was a captain called Lorenzo Pinto. Um, He was a ship captain. When Lorenzo Pinto arrived into what's now they call Ghana, he reported in the ship's logs, he wrote in the ship's logs, that the people had streets as straight as the eye could see. And they also had street lamps that were being lit, kept lit with palm tree oil. Mm-hmm. And that the people had no doors on their homes because theft was unknown in the area. They didn't steal from one another. And that they dressed in fine garments and everyone was happy. So even though they had a chief in the tribe who was the ultimate authority, the people were treated very, very well. And they, they didn't want for anything. And it was a, a pretty advanced society. And then uh, in, in Benin, it was called the city of Benin, the great city of Benin, they called it. They, they had mm-hmm. construction works where they built the largest, uh, they built a wall around the whole city and that wall was 10 times the great size, 10 times the size of the Great Wall of China. Yeah. So, and there's remnants you can still see parts of the wall if you go to Benin today. And so we know in order to build a wall around a city, you, mm-hmm. had, to, you had to have some knowledge of brickwork. You had to have knowledge of earthworks, building dams. You know, so in order to build that wall, there were some knowledge that the people had to have. But then when it came to the U.S., they didn't have, uh, there was nothing the colonists were doing in order to utilize those skills. So everything was pretty rudimentary. 
and they just needed to pretty much grow food and eat and sustain themselves. Because when you think about it, it's pretty unfortunate that the two races, you had, you had the dominant race of the Europeans who kind of subjugated the, the black racial people and not utilized that knowledge. And had they utilized that knowledge and worked together, the world would be about 400 years advanced than where is that today. Mm. because you would think that the Europeans had to do some catching up to where the black people from Africa was as far as their level of intelligence because they had no streets in Europe at the time and the Europeans lived in home, at home I'm mean, sorry, the animals lived in the houses in Europe in the 16th century because theft was so great and robbery and, and murder and rape. And the people just didn't trust each other. Where in Africa, mm -hmm. Africa was a whole different type of a system where their animals were kept outside. So just even the keeping of animals outside and the domestication of them here in the United States, that was learned from the people in Africa because the Europeans never even thought of keeping animals outside of their homes. They didn't know how to do that. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, so that intelligence was just sort of oppressed and for an immediate need to exist and sustain oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also... Which was a great loss to humanity at that time. Sorry, what was that? I said that was a great loss to humanity at that time. Oh, right. Definitely. Um, I was wondering what you think like the answer is or like, do you think there's a solution to all the damage that that's been done and like do you have an idea of like the best what the best version of repayment would look like so kind of two separate questions but that's that's a good question um how do you make it how do you make the force an unpaid worker descendants whole and that's mm -hmm. that's uh, an episode that uh, we'll also dedicate. We'll dedicate that to an episode, specific episode. Um, mm -hmm. And we have to look at our audience and who are we asking to make payments. Okay, so the people today will say they can't take my doc, my tax dollar and I figure the debts probably have maybe around 14 trillion dollars total economy of the United States is around 28 trillion so that's half of the half of the economy in order to pay the debt 
And, and so the, the taxpayer, the American taxpayer, is very opposed to paying their tax dollar, and then that tax dollar is going to pay descendants of slaves who actually were not slaves themselves. But what they, those descendants have is that those descendants have inherited generational poverty. Mm-hmm. Whereas the dominant class has created generational wealth. Right. And even if some of that wealth is not family wealth, it's institutional wealth. And we'll we'll be getting into this in later episodes as well. But the tobacco products that were sold, we, we could trace the tobacco products from the start of those products that were created with the knowledge of the forced and unpaid black worker that came from the islands in the Caribbean and their homeland was in Africa. So that knowledge created a world trade system, international trade system, because tobacco created, that was the first system of international trade. Tobacco was began to be sold around the world. Mm-hmm. And so those, those descendants of those workers still live in perpetual poverty, even up to today. And so we have to say, at what time do we make it right that we make those descendants whole as other parts of America are, or other citizens in America are, are, are whole? And we, we yeah, they needed jobs, and so currently today, African Americans have jobs, but those jobs that never create wealth. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have one part of the population that's living in wealth, and the other one living in poverty, that's why we say we have the ghetto or we have the hood. This is the hood is people who live in poverty. They have high crime rates, high infant mortality rates, high unemployment rates. And then the other part of the, those living in the country, they'll live in neighborhoods where there is no crime. And in every major city in the United States, you can, there is an area where it's called the hood and in the hood is there is that generational poverty Mm -hmm. people in the hood deserve to live as well as other people in the country there's whites whites who don't live in the hood because basically it was a you know it was an unlikely partnership you had the landowner who worked with the forced unpaid worker. So it was unlike the partnership, but it was still a partnership. So you have to make your partner whole as well. 
Now, getting back to my point where the dominant class of Europeans are opposed to their tax dollars going and cash payments to descendants of the forced and unpaid worker. So how do you write, make it right? So America's built on corporations. So America's built on corporations. Mm-hmm. And I think you can use the, the, the government could actually finance corporations and you could have just corporations that make consumables like toilet paper, toothpaste, deodorant, things that you use for personal hygiene. And that's probably about, a, a, I'd say, maybe a $100 billion industry right now. And in that hundred dollar, hundred million, hundred billion dollar industry, it is creating institutional and generational wealth for the dominant European class. Now, if you was to take, you say, a trillion dollars, and you could create a thousand of these corporations, and these corporations, well, what that does is going to expand their economy. So now, instead of having a there's a benefit. Instead of having a twenty-eight billion, I'm sorry, twenty-eight trillion dollar company, uh, country. I mean, a twenty-eight trillion dollar economy. So now you have a twenty-nine trillion dollar economy because you're just expanding it a trillion dollars by building these corporations. These mm-hmm. corporations could be strategically placed in the impoverished neighbor, neighborhoods. Now you have have corporations that actually is manufacturing. They can actually, now you're creating jobs, so you have a decrease in the unemployment rate for people live in that community. And then you have those thousand companies in a trust. And so that trust is managed so that you cannot reinvest in anything for 50 years. And so now those companies grow in value. And then descendants of forced and unpaid workers become stock owners in those companies. As you, now you can sell your stock if you want to, you can keep your stock if you want to, just like stock in any other company. And so that is a form of repayment because there's access to cash if you need it there because you have your stock. You can sell it. If you wanted to go into business, you can sell your stock, get your money, and open up a business. If you wanted to just save your wealth and let it build from generation to generation and the ownership of that stock, you could you could do that. And then I think mm-hmm. we would get rid of poverty crime because crime is only wherever there's poverty, there's crime. If there's no poverty, there's no crime. You can look at Hollywood and uh, Beverly Hills and all these affluent areas throughout the nation. There's no crime in those areas. It's because they're affluent areas. And that's what my thoughts are. Uh, Of course, I'm not an economist and we'd have to look at an economist to really flush out the idea Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'm sure there's like a lot of different. I'm sure there's a lot of different scenarios and different things that can play out. Yeah, but people have so many different ideas about um what it should look like. So I think that one's really interesting. Yeah, you you have to develop it in a way that people can accept it. Is that yes, my tax dollar is providing this benefit, but it's also a benefit to me as well. It's like a win-win situation for everyone. Or you can just keep sending money overseas to fight wars. Mm -hmm. Like in Ukraine and the Gaza, Israel. We pay out out billions of dollars each year just to maintain our dominance in the world by buying other governments and paying off other governments. And some of those funds could be utilized to finance the needs here in this country. Like in the, the the UN budget and the NATO budget, we pretty much finance NATO and we finance the UN. And that's pretty much to keep our dominance over other countries in the world. Do you think that's been consistent from um, all the way back to the colonies or like from the Revolutionary War, like the way that this country has operated? Well, historically, it's been since the Second World War when the United Mm -hmm. States in the United States and fighting Nazism and the Germans basically blew bomb Europe into smithereens where they destroyed 15 million homes 5 million businesses and it displaced over I think it's about 10 or 12 million people And from there, those com- countries couldn't, they could not industrialize. So then the United States became the manufacturer of the world, kind of like what China is today. And, uh, and they gave loans to the European countries, taught them how to do businesses, set them up in businesses to, in order to re- rebuild their economy. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, has not happened to other. Uh, had they did the same thing during colonialism or post-colonialism in Africa and went in and rebuilt what they had destroyed, because you can go to almost 90, 95% of Africa today, and it still looks like what it looked like during colonial times. There's no development there. Mm-hmm. But it provides almost 80% of the raw materials that needed to make all the products in the world. 
And that's a different episode. <laughs> right. I was going to ask you things like to fix problems in Africa. Like it's a different, it's a whole different ball game. Or do you think it, there are a lot of similarities between repayment here and repayment there? There's a lot of similarities. Uh, it sort of gets political. Um, Africa, if Africa is allowed to develop, Africa will become the the most powerful continent in the world. And mm-hmm. sometimes when people have power, they want to hang on to that power. And you don't want to support your adversary or potential adversary and assist them in developing their power. But we already see that with the Chinese, how the Chinese now is almost in another 10 years of how the largest economy in the world. And that economy was built by U.S. businessmen looking for cheap labor, establishing corporations in China, and then exporting the products that was built back into the U.S., because the U.S. has got the largest consumers. And so now... Right, and I actually read recently that um, I think a majority of the mines in Congo that are using child labor are like Chinese mining companies that are backed by U.S. money. Exactly. That's interesting. But it's definitely you know, history is being repeated. Exactly. And I think the United States probably learned from that and that would affect the development of uh, nations in Africa because they don't want to repeat what they've done with the Chinese by making them, Mm -hmm. making them uh, the second largest power in the world. Built off the U.S. economy. So anyway, I think uh, we'll sort of end here. It sounds like a good place to end. Um, yeah, it's really informative. Well, thank you for taking the time to participate in the discussion. Do you have any? Um, uh, details about what you're going to talk about in the next episode? The next episode, we're going to go into the laws, what they're called by uh, the governor of Jamestown, uh, Governor Drake, where he instituted the laws that they established for the colonists to live by. Now, mm-hmm. The laws, morale, and Marshall, and it was a okay. it was a code that he developed, and uh, we'll talk about the harshness of that code, and how that brutality of that code eventually passed off into the brutality that was placed on the forced and unpaid workers, <clears throat> which prevented them from obtaining opportunity.
up until today, up until today. Yeah, so that's what we we'll, we'll do on the next episode. Going forward, we'll get into the the laws that block the forced unpaid workers from obtaining opportunity. Well, definitely be tuning in. Okay, well, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. And enjoy the rest of your evening. You too. Bye. Bye now. This is the end of our episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Our black people lost their minds. I'm Dr. Dillard, and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.